I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. As protests, police brutality, and the ongoing threat of COVID-19 upend notions of safety and unleash deep-seated fury and grief, stress and worry abound, particularly for communities of color. Adults are understandably having difficulty managing their own stress, and they are worried about the effects of all of this on their children. A few days before George Floyd suffocated under the weight of a Minneapolis police officer's knee, we spoke with Dr. Sheila Olson-Walker about the steps we can take during this unsettling time to be well and even thrive. Sheila holds various science and teaching positions at Tufts University's Institute for Applied Research in Youth Development, Johns Hopkins School of Education, George Washington University, and the University of California, Irvine. Among other roles, she also sits on Turnaround for Children's Advisory Board. Sheila has spent much of her career researching the intersection of biology and behavior. Most recently, she's written a series of articles for Turnaround called Back to Basics that illuminates how and why a handful of synergistic, simple, and scientifically grounded lifestyle choices offer protection and fortify mental and physical health for life. As she explains, our bodies and brains are integrated systems. Before my conversation with Sheila, though, an ask from me to you. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Sheila Olson-Walker. Sheila, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here, Chris. So I'm a little intimidated by your posts. In addition to your writing and your ideas and um, the connections that you make between uh, all the things that we ought to be kind of doing as good human beings, plus the biological benefits, um, you quote one of my personal heroes and many other great thinkers like Brian Stevenson, Mahatma Gandhi, Maya Angelou, even Marcel Proust. Um, you find inspiration everywhere, don't you? I find inspiration everywhere. The uh, the really fun part of writing these posts has been integrating my own personal path and my own personal experiences and the things that I've just naturally gravitated towards in my own life in a way that brings together the science and also the emotion uh, that lies uh, behind it really big kind of biosocial recipe for for healing all of us and for optimal health, cognitive performance, uh, all the things that help us live long, happy, healthy, and productive lives. Let's start with your take on these times. They're stressful for everyone. How would you characterize this period for each of these groups, parents, teachers, and kids? Well, you know, similar in many ways, but distinct. And Mm. I'll start with kids. It varies by developmental age and stage and also by that individual child, who that child is. It's nature via nurture. And so, you know, all children are decidedly different. Um, So, uh, but, you know, not having the social and emotional connections, not having the activity levels of sports and running around and and, uh, that piece of it, uh, I think parents are collectively concerned about screen time. We've got three teenage boys, 13, 15, and 17. So screen time has always been a big issue in our house, but 
but you know, never more than now. Uh, so three boys, twenty-five screens, I assume. <laughs> Something like that <laughs> feels like more sometimes. I understand. Uh, but you know, there are uh, developmental ramifications of the so- social emotional context they're in right now. I think teachers are doing their utmost and their very best to continue to develop strong relationships, maintain strong relationships, um, deliver content in a way that's engaging for, you know, for their students. But it's, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. The the quote that I heard from, uh, from a friend who was an educator was that it's about four times as much work for a hundred times less joy, Mm. that people energy is profoundly important. I think for, for all of us, you know, for the reasons I write about in many of my articles, where social creatures were designed to be together, and the neurobiological and quantum level energy that um, shows up and that integrates into our genome, the nature via nurture epigenetics thing, um, that fuels us. So, so that's teachers for parents. I think you know, it's um, we're it's we're all wearing a lot of hats and a lot more hats than we used to be wearing a few months ago. And uh, it can be uh, exhausting. It can be uh, all-consuming. I think we're really trying to um, take care of ourselves so that we can take care of other, others. And that's, I think, the, the primary thing we can do right now is really do the things uh, around self-care, you know, get, get our sleep, um, make healthy choices, get out for physical activity at least 30 minutes a day, um, meditate, mindfulness, strong science behind it, but do the things that we know will put gas in our gas tank so that we can uh, be present, be where our feet are ourselves, be healthy so that we can be a resource to others. Is stress always a bad thing for children for their development and their learning, or do we need to be thinking about specific types of stress? That's a great question, Chris. Uh, stress is not a, a bad thing. Stress in and of itself is a, a necessary and important part of, uh, of human development. It, it helps us rise to the occasion. If we're doing a, um, if a, you know, someone is playing a sporting event or they have a test coming up or they're doing a public speaking event, anything along those lines, that involves stress. That involves the mechanism of cortisol to get us stamped up to be able to perform to our, to our optimal level. Um, the problem is when it becomes chronic stress mm-hmm. and chronic stress is unrelenting kind of stress where that biological mechanism of cortisol and other powerful inflammatory biochemicals kicks in and, and marinates. Our brains, our bodies are marinating in these biochemicals, which over time, if the stress level is not coming down, it can, it can eat away and erode at our system, causing longer term ramifications in terms of brain structure and function, in terms of chronic disease, mental health. Uh, all of these types of things. The really good news, though, is that there are are buffers, and many of the buffers are things that I write about, human relationships being the primary buffer because of the hormone oxytocin and the other positive uh, connection-related biochemicals that that kick into gear when we feel uh, seen, felt, valued, and, and loved. So stress can be bad, but it's not always bad. You've written a series of really powerful posts called Back to Basics. What's the thesis in this series? The thesis is, is just as the overarching title uh, unfolds, it's Back to Basics. These are the things that have sustained us since the beginning of time uh, that we know that are, uh, that are fueling for our systems that can help us not only perform to our optimal level, uh, but also heal and, 
and recover neurobiologically. Uh, you know, it used to be in the time of Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine. Uh, you know, it was more observational, um, common sense. Uh, now we have fMRI scanners and we have, uh, you know, we have uh, genetic tests and we have uh, hormone tests that help validate the, neuro, the brain science and neurobiology behind the validity of these uh, interventions, these lifestyle interventions. While these are stressful times, do they also present an opportunity to take stock of our behaviors and actions and approaches? As, as I was reading what you wrote, it felt to me almost like this is a time when we have a chance to perhaps create new habits. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think that is the big opportunity presented by what we're all living through right now. This this slowly unfolding trauma that we're living through gives us the ability to really take stock of where we are uh, as a community, as a society and change some basic lifestyle habits that will foster uh, better health, mental health, physical health, emotional health for the generations to come. So let's talk about how to translate this into everyday actions, I guess, for kids, for kids as well. The neurobiology of service. What is it? And why is altruism not just doing good for someone else, but it turns out um, it does good for oneself, too? And sometimes it can do better for oneself than it can for the, the person who's mm. being given to. Mm. Um, it's because of this fundamental... Uh, attribute of human beings as social animals. We're meant to be together. We're meant to work together. We're meant to be connected. Um, isolation is a massive problem in our society, in our world. Uh, technology can, in some ways, exacerbate that, and sometimes, in some ways, it can and help. Uh, it's a it's a helping force. It certainly has been during this period of time for kids who are staying connected, you know, via FaceTime and, and telephone and so forth. But um, you know, the bottom line is that the the feeling that we feel when we connect with another human being by doing something good, giving ourselves freely, it makes a tangible neurobiological difference in our brains, in our bodies. We can feel it. We feel it right away. And there's all actually data behind that. There's molecules behind that. And so it really uh, powers the spirit and the soul, which powers our mind and body as well. We all know what altruism is. Um, it's frequently hard to find the time oneself to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's often equally hard, maybe harder, um, to inspire our kids. So give, give me some guidance. H how does one integrate altruism? You know, it's often it's really the little things, these, these little human moments and the small things that uh, add up in a big way. Barbara Fredrickson did a lot of uh, research on this area and, you know, the, the kind of brain chemistry of, of doing several acts, random acts of kindness per day really added up. There's something about you know, that building that neurobiological muscle that really fueled people in a positive way. But as you think about, you know, even doing little things around the house, doing, doing a chore that somebody else is supposed to do, um, really making the time to listen to someone or if someone has, has, uh, you know, behaved in a way that is, uh, uh, you know, that is uh, presented some issues or problems. Really dealing with it in a in a calm way and helping them get back to a place of homeostasis. So it's really looking for opportunities 
just to do small little things. Um, it can be also just be out and about uh, in our communities, you know, really making an effort to look uh, our, the grocery store cashier in the eyes and say, thank you for being here. You know, something that promotes a sense of connection between two human beings and they just inevitably factor into positive neurobiology, neurochemistry that promotes our health and well-being. And what are the best ways in your view and in your research to communicate those benefits to kids? I, I assume it's a, that type of communication has to vary by age. Well, it's, it really starts with feeling it, feeling it and, and helping them be aware of how it feels to, you know, to, to give of yourself in that way, really selflessly. It does feel really good. So, um, you know, pausing in the moment to really just stop and not run past it and, uh, and reflect on, on how it feels inside our minds, inside our bodies. Um, that's a good way to help them understand uh, the power of it. And ultimately, you know, again, it's like going to the gym. It's called the altruism gym. The more that we do it, the more our perspective opens up. There's an openness that, that generates to, you know, really wanting to be a positive force in the world around us. And it feels good to, you know, to, to, to live that. And so helping children understand at whatever developmental level they're at, those dynamics, um, that is a reinforcer on continuing to do it again. It must be intrinsically motivated, Mm. not extrinsically motivated, because that really defeats the whole purpose of it. I loved some of the ideas, you know, as simple as running an errand for a neighbor, um, particularly at the time that you and I are talking right now, help celebrate a graduation uh, as we're all seeing all of these graduations. And I can tell you, you know, in our neighborhood, uh, class of 2020 signs on, you know, so many lawns. Um, create a day of kindness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah. Have you seen that work? Uh, I've seen that work in our house. If altruism is doing actions, doing something, giving, giving of oneself for the benefit of somebody else, what about the other direction? What about gratitude? Uh, are there benefits there? The neurobiology of gratitude, again, gets these same group of positive connect, human connective tissue biochemicals uh, going in our, in our minds and our bodies. Um, what's real in the mind is real in the body. Perceptions shape our gene expression patterns. So that's a really, really important point, how our genes are expressed how our neurobiology unfolds and thus how we look and how we feel and how we sleep and all the things that contribute to the broader kind of comprehensive wellness package that we are. Um, so gratitude, feeling gratitude, noticing, noticing gratitude. And there is, there is, uh, there is opportunity for gratitude all the time, but it's about finding the little moments and then really looking for, uh, for things that it's often things that, uh, when things go sideways, we realize, oh boy, I wish that hadn't happened, or I wish that hadn't happened, or what have you. But just taking taking joy in the things that happen every day, and there are always human moments every day that happen, as well as as material things, when we can really pay attention to those, and that is positive for our health. Is it hard to expect kids to express gratitude at times of stress? I think for all of us, in a way. Uh, being in a place where we're mo- more emotionally receptive to those feelings uh, is is key for kids. You know, 
they're on the go, they're doing things, they're talking to their friends, this and that. So to have, you know, a moment of gratitude, you know, it may uh, in some cases need to be something concrete where something was done and they feel grateful for that. Um, but, you know, like like a trip to, to, you know, get an ice cream cone or something along those lines or someone who's done something nice for them. But in terms of the, um, you know, kind of the broader feel, human being feeling moments of gratitude, you know, it takes being in a certain headspace mm. and a recognition. I feel like those are the most really powerful moments of gratitude that have to do with some level of reflection on a moment or on a person or a person's actions that really resonates in the heart space. And in reading what you've written, it seemed to me that it's something that perhaps one can almost operationalize. Um, keep a daily gratitude journal. Um, write down three to five things you're grateful for. I am grateful, dot, 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 um, you know, in, in expressing that. Write a letter of gratitude every week. I mean, th these are, there, are, there are things, you know, I, I think as a parent trying to um, bring out gratitude among my kids. Am I, am I reading your tips correctly? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think two things on that. The first thing is when we write things down, we make them concrete. Mm. We take them out of our minds and get them out into the world on a piece of paper that's mailed to somebody else or, or a piece of paper that stays with us. Uh, you know, as we think about osmosis, you know, we do, we process things uh, while we're sleeping. We're processed a lot while we're sleeping. Our brain uses as much energy as we're sleeping when we're sleeping as it does when we're awake and mm. going to bed on a note of thinking about positive things that happened is positive also for our for our sleep our sleep quality and and things along those lines um so taking it out of the mind putting it on the paper the second thing is you know yes it's it's hard to uh make someone see gratitude when they they're not either not in the headspace or they're not seeing it or what have you and the most important thing we can do as adults is to walk our talk Really, you know, live, you know, be the be be the change in the world that we want to see, because you know the 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 quote that I have in one of my articles: "Don't worry that children aren't listening to you; you should worry that they're watching you. Mm. They're watching you all the time. They're absorbing both consciously and also below the radar uh, the way that we operate in the world, the way we operate with ourselves, with other people. We're in stressful situations. Uh, you know, they they see all, they absorb all of this." And so um, that's my thought there. When you talk about uh, helping integrate and bring out altruism, when you talk about helping instill a sense of gratitude, is there an urgency around this? The times that we are living in, um, is this urgent? I think this is extraordinarily urgent, and it's going to be a major component in uh, – helping us move forward as a community, a society, a, a world to, to heal and to establish these new patterns of behavior. People are struggling. People have been struggling since the beginning of time, but there is this vast inequity in our, in our society, which has gotten exacerbated by COVID and will continue to be. This is something that is going to fundamentally change much of how we operate um, in, in all areas of our lives for some time to come. So, uh, in integrating these principles of looking out for our fellow human beings, of being aware of the world around us, of looking for ways to help, of being grateful for what we do have is extraordinarily important. And then the, the lifestyle habits, the 
healthy eating, getting sleep, getting physical activity every day, taking time for mindfulness. These are fundamentally important. And if you look at the COVID statistics, um, obesity has been one of the the core factors Mm. in vulnerability. And so as we think about integrating, um, as we think about curricula going forward and how the skills we want to raise our children to have as they move into their adolescent and adult lives, mental and physical health, having a toolbox for that is absolutely important. As we know, these early years are neurobiologically stickier for habit formation. And the the earlier that they can get introduced and have positive experiences here, therein comes the relationship piece with with moving their bodies every day, with with getting their, you know, getting their sleep, with eating well, uh, with practicing mindfulness, feeling the good feelings that come from it, noticing how more uh, how how much more productive they are, how better how much better their mood is. These things are fundamental in helping them move on to be a healthier generation than our generation, and that tends to perpetuate forward as well. We all know how hard it is to change habits. Is there guidance around how can we take the new habits that are developing and help to make them stick going forward? Well, you know, awareness is really important, and as we know, our emotions drive everything. They're the, they're the canvas upon which everything else is painted. They're the priming of the canvas. Everything in, in, our, in our cognition goes through an emotional filter first. And so, you know, having our, having our emotional filter uh, relatively uh, fog-free to the degree that that's possible by, you know, slowing down, pausing, reflecting, and labeling when things come up stopping and, and kind of understanding what our emotions are before walking into the kitchen. Think about those emotions and just sort of propel yourself forward into these things that it once, you know, the neurobiology catches up with us. Sometimes it's hard in the moment, but, you know, we all fall off the horse and it's about getting back on and forming these habits that we know if we stay with them and we're consistent with them. And, it, you know, we're not talking about um, going out to train for you know, an Ironman. We're talking about really just making sure we move our bodies. We're, we're mammals. We were evolved to move our bodies every day. That's how our brains function best. That's how our uh, health is, is optimized. This is how we were designed. So just remembering, again, to the back to basics, that um, the more that we can just move right through these um, our, our roadblocks and stay with it, and then, and then at the end of the day, write uh, a note to ourselves in our gratitude j- journal, good job, you know, you stayed with it. Is there a line between public education and public health? There has been a, a, a divide between public education and public health for various reasons. Uh, uh, healthcare privacy and educational privacy called HIPAA and FERPA. Uh, this is a time that really takes the scenario that divide between health and education and and puts it up uh, for examination under a really hot spotlight because a, a child who is not healthy cannot learn and we can't keep a child healthy who is not educated. This is, these are what the statistics look like. That's a quote by the former Surgeon General. Um, public education is a pu- public health issue, particularly for our most vulnerable children. Uh, and at the bottom of the base upon which the building blocks for learning are built is mental and physical health. So this is really a time to focus on that. And uh, my belief is to integrate some of these wellness concepts 
learning about taking care of oneself, having tools to manage stress in one's toolkit uh, in school settings taught by teachers and also practiced by teachers so that um, children can learn these skills from an early age. And really, these are part of the life skills that they're graduating from from school with, not just reading, writing and arithmetic. Yeah, I was just thinking to myself that it'll be the, the three R's plus W, reading, writing, arithmetic and wellness. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Sheila, I'd love to close on the topic that you were just talking about, movement and activity and sports. I know for you personally, sports played a big role uh, in your life. I am uh, never going to challenge you to a game of tennis, for example. <laughs> sports leagues are closed. Um, yes. Pick up basketball is, in my area at least, and I think in most areas, uh pretty close to impossible. How concerned are you about the lack of uh, kind of organized sports and even disorganized sports and the physical and emotional benefits that team sports can bring? So I was just actually just before our conversation today on a webinar to talk about the return to youth sports and the U.S., uh, the chief medical officer of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic uh, committee was on as well, talking about return to sports. They put on their guide, they put out their guidance a week ago. The, the bottom line is, um, you know, we, the decision, the timing on when uh, and how uh, kids go back is going to be very much local, and there are parameters that need to be put in place. Safety first. Um, it is important to get kids out and moving again. This is a, an extraordinarily important area. Uh, many children who are uh, intrinsically motivated to to get out and do sports, um, for them, it's going to be one thing. But for children who are, are not as excited about, you know, getting up and, and moving and playing sports, it's going to be another. So I think there's going to need to be a real proactive uh, effort on the side of um, coaches, uh, physical education teachers, athletic directors, educators, parents, to really focus on getting getting uh, their kids out and active as possible. In the meantime, you know we've got we have the ability to do you know small things in the house, get outside for a walk. It's always better outside than in, and just keeping move, moving in, in in the way that we have easy access to, and that's you know relatively stress free. So is the the takeaway? These are difficult times. They're stressful times. Um, but they are also times for, of, of opportunity, and maybe it means focusing and thinking about and maybe even defining opportunity slightly differently than one normally does. Um, but in reading your materials, I came away feeling like it's there. It's there for the taking. It, uh, to me, it very much feels like the, there's a scientific term called signal-to-noise ratio. Uh, the signal-to-noise ratio, things can get drowned out. In this, the main signal can get drowned out in a lot of noise. And the signal-to-noise ratio is very high right now. People are paying attention. People are listening because of COVID, because of the ramifications of COVID. And uh, the health, mental health, physical health are two sides of the same coin. And it really is, it really is uh, an essential time and I think an incredibly opportune time for a reset for all of us within schools, within families, within communities, and globally. Sheila, thank you. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you, Chris. It was wonderful to talk with you. 
That was my conversation with Dr. Sheila Olson-Walker. My thanks to Sheila for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.